what it does is it again confirms the the kind of demographic and and large scale studies that others have done which is that women start off with less and come out with less and struggle more we know that up to 5 years after the divorce women were more likely to to be in a weaker financial position to not have recovered their financial position and that even if they repartnered they were still uh, more likely the men not to have got back to where they were during the marriage Hello and welcome to the Resolution podcast. This month we are looking at the Fair Shares report and we're joined by Joe Edwards, Professor Gillian Douglas and Professor Emma Hitchens. And I wonder whether each of you could just introduce yourselves briefly for our listeners. Joe, would you mind going first? Hi there. I'm Joe Edwards. I'm partner and head of family at uh, Central London firm Forsters, also a mediator. And in a resolution capacity, I'm former national chair and I chair the Family Law Reform Committee. Hello, I'm Gillian Douglas. I'm a professor emerita um, from King's College London, where I was executive dean of the law school before I retired. Um, I've had an interest. in teaching and researching family law throughout my career since so I wouldn't like to tell you how long that is um but it's very long and I've always wanted to look in close detail at financial arrangements on divorce and so it's been a really great opportunity for me to work with uh, Emma and Caroline and colleagues to bring this to fruition hi Hi, I'm Emma Hitchings. I'm a professor of family law at the University of Bristol. My research interests lie mainly in the areas of financial remedies, family separation, and family justice. And um, over the last, I suppose, two decades now, I've undertaken a range of funded empirical research studies looking at um, aspects such as financial settlements on divorce, prenuptial agreements, um, and litigants in person, for example. And most recently, I've been leading the Fair Shares research study, which was funded by the Nuffield Foundation. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. And Emma, seeing as you have the floor, as it were, could we come to come to you first of all? And would you mind telling us a bit about how this research came about? and broadly what you were looking to find out yes um well i think there's a there's a short and a long version to that i suppose the shorter version is that um as your listeners may be aware i think of the approximately 100,000 couples who divorce each year in england and wales of those only around 1/3 leaves the marriage with a court order now we know something about the court financial remedies population through court file surveys but we know almost nothing about that two thirds of the population that do not go to court so sort of looking in terms of how this came about i was involved in a a previous research study about a decade ago with joanna miles where we did a court file survey of financial remedy cases across four courts and both of us became very aware of the major gap in data in relation to the non court divorcing population so after i think one of the dissemination events i remember chatting to caroline and gillian about after the event about the possibility of future research on the entire divorcing population to find out what is actually happening for that everyday divorcing couple and what they do about their finances in relation to divorce because despite the numerous calls to reform the law on this issue very little is actually known about the details of how couples negotiate their settlements what they got how they actually go about it and how these work out So what we wanted to do was undertake a study that would present the first detailed fully representative picture in England and Wales importantly including information both on couples who do and who don't do not make use of the legal system and so i suppose that's the the shorter version that over a couple of years we developed our methods and and put in a funding application to undertake the study and uh, obviously it's a long report and i'm not trying to ask you to <laughs> to summarize it too shortly but but could you give us 
some of the headline findings about what you discovered in the way people divide their assets and how they treat the family home? Yes, um, I mean, I suppose one of our key findings was that the median value of divorcees' total asset pool was £135,000. So that's actually the, the 50th centile, you know, 50% of the divorcing population will get less than that or have less than that. So therefore, it is unsurprising that half of divorcees who had made an arrangement we found received less than £50,000. Um, and in terms of the asset value and outcome, almost a quarter ended up with nothing or only debts. Um, and just over one in five ended up with less than £25,000. So really, I think the picture that's painted from the findings is of many divorcees ending up with very little, not unexpectedly, actually, given the modest value of the assets they have to deal with. In terms of percentage share, we found that equal sharing of assets was not the norm. Um, only you know, under a third, 28% of divorcees reported receiving around half of the total assets. And the majority actually shared out their assets unequally, which in their instances reflected need, it reflected their individual circumstances, and also the, the differing motivations amongst divorcees, such as wanting a clean break. Um, so that was one of our, our key findings. I, I mean, we, we found others in relation to pensions as well. I don't know if, if Gillian wants to give um, a bit more detail on that. Yes, certainly. Um, in, in, in terms of pensions it's it's quite a worrying picture i would say i think we knew probably already that pensions are a complicated uh, area for people at the best of times and that the provisions uh, for pension sharing are complex and that a lot of people seem to avoid dealing with their pensions, offsetting, of course, uh, against other assets seems to be an important part of, 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 of the toolbox, as it were. But I think what our study adds to that is, is, is it confirms, if you like, the low level of pension sharing. Um, I think it's, it's something like 11% across the board in our study. Uh, where there was a, um, a an agreement or an arrangement to share a, a future pension. And what we found, uh, which I think helps to sort of explain that to some extent, is high level of ignorance about people's own pensions, lack of interest, it seemed, in pensions, and therefore a lack of taking into account how the pension might affect people's post-divorce financial circumstances. Now, I don't think that's sort of, you know, an amazingly new finding. I suspect it's, you know, it's, it's well understood, but it confirms that whatever we thought we might have been doing when the pension sharing arrangements were introduced into the law, our work, along with that of the, the pensions advisory group and so on, shows that we're not really getting to grips with a fair or a uh, comprehensive account of people's pensions wealth and therefore uh, any kind of allocation or division of those pensions. And I would say that as, as an area for further consideration, uh, for reform and reorganisation, for me, pensions would be the most important issue, but I know we can we can come back to that in due course. I mean, what what struck me was the enormous gulf between the the reality that you were describing of what most people's experience is and the media, but but also um, specialist discourse that there is around family law, which is all just focused on a few enormously wealthy uh, couples' divorces that get that get reported. I mean, I, I, I don't know, Joe, if you have got some sort of, of, of thoughts on that, on how we actually move the discourse to be talking about the reality that so many people actually face. No, I, I completely agree with that. And I come at this, obviously, with different hats on, but with my law reform geek hat on, 
it was really pleasing actually to see the detail, the sheer level of detail coming out of this report. So Emma's already mentioned the fact that there really was a knowledge gap here. And those of us practicing in this area had that real sense of frustration about how little was known, both in terms of the process by which divorcing couples arrived at their financial outcome and the fairness of those arrangements and looking at things from a longitudinal perspective. But also striking, as you say, Simon, is those media headlines, which we've read for a number of years about sensationalist cases, big assets, big wealth, huge fees, um, outcomes which on the surface have been really difficult to explain and justify without knowing more about the cases in question. So I think partly I celebrated seeing this report, reading this report in draft and then final version for the first time, just looking at how well it addressed the knowledge gap and how much detail it addressed that gap and looking at the different cohorts of people who do go through divorce. But it really challenges those myths, doesn't it, that we see peddled in the media about cases, about the level of assets, um, about the prevalence of spousal maintenance, which we're going to come on to, about the level of fees that people are incurring in their divorces. So it's really key that we actually take this report and we use it as an evidential basis for reform. We also know on a slightly separate note at the moment, there's ongoing discussion around the use of mediation. And there was the spectre earlier this year of compulsory mediation, mandatory mediation, with the supporting earlier resolution consultation, which came out in March. And again, I think we need to look very carefully at what this report finds about mediation, what some of the messages are. And I think and hope it reinforces that sense of mediation being a great option, but not a silver bullet and not the be all for every single couple. So something that we can actually take to government and say it has to be in the appropriate case that you're using mediation. And then finally, at the risk of sounding self-serving, and I haven't quite got round to what the messaging around this is, but within the report, another thing that came up for me was the value add that lawyers bring and the fact that generally where couples did involve lawyers, and Emma and Gillian will speak to the fact it's increasingly infrequent, and we knew that as a result of last time, but where lawyers were involved, they generally work to help people towards solutions, to signpost them. So when it comes to resolutions ask around funding for initial legal advice and signposting, all of that, again, hopefully, will be really useful. I think that that even applied to mediation, didn't it, in, in that mediation was more likely to be successful or people were more likely to be flanked to go to mediation they were more like exactly that they were more likely the prevalence of mediation taking place um, was more likely where lawyers had been involved which as we know as practitioners absolutely reflects the pre-lasco position and the fact that mediation numbers then fell off a cliff once that initial signposting was taken away from the vast majority of family cases Interesting. So our last episode, we talked with John Simmons, who's a colleague of yours, Emma, I think, about the research that he'd done into people's experience of mediation. And it, it really chimes and gels with, with this piece, I think. No, it does. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It, it does. Um, I think our research as well, I think we know that the government's preferred mode of non-court dispute resolution is mediation. But from our perspective, what we found out from the Fair Shares study was that it was not the most popular avenue for um, individual divorcees to pursue. Only 17% of divorcees said they had used it and only 12% reached agreement by that route. And, and you're absolutely right. We also found that, you know, divorcees were much more likely to have tempted mediation if they had engaged with a lawyer, according to the findings as well. So I think the reasons for using courts and lawyers in preference to mediation, uh, we found was sort of really concerned a lack of ability to negotiate with the other spouse, which is also chiming with John's research that, you know, this might be related, for instance, to power relationships between the parties, including it may be where there's been domestic abuse or one party to refusing to engage, for instance. Um, and I know that Gillian will speak later to sort of the, the whole typology that we came up with in terms of the research. But I think those unequal divorcees 
that we found within the study, those who were perhaps in a relationship where there was unequal bargaining positions may not have been best suited to mediation. Um, They were in difficult relationships with a more powerful spouse um, and they may have struggled to cope with mediation unless, of course, at a minimum, we have things like backup legal support to assist them in determining the, the boundaries of an acceptable legal arrangement. So I think there are a number of elements that chime with John's findings in that report that come through from the findings that we had. Emma, if I may, I mean, the other thing that really struck me, and you've spoken some of it there, is the statistic around only 44% of those who made arrangements through mediation said after the event that those arrangements had worked out as they'd expected. And that was a lower level of satisfaction compared with, I think, around 76% of those who'd either had an outcome imposed by a judge or had been negotiated through lawyers Um, express satisfaction with those arrangements and it's something which since we've had the benefit of reading your report I've been talking to quite a lot of people within the mediation community to try to understand what actually that may belie and what what the explanation is for that 44% figure and I know that one of the reasons I think you posited within your report is it may be that mediation followed on from other options having been attempted but failed and that it was almost last chance saloon and people feeling like they had to reach an agreement, however grudgingly. But I'm interested whether um, you or Gillian have any other views as to why, in relative terms, the satisfaction levels seemed quite low. Yeah, can I can I add add something there? I think that's 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 absolutely right. What I think may be happening is that Because mediation is now pushed so hard, I think people who do go to lawyers, as well as those who don't, are told, well, if you haven't tried mediation and you're then holding out for something different, it's not going to go very well with you if you end up in court. So I think there is an element of people going through the motions of mediation because they've been told that they really have to show that they've tried. And it may well be then that they reach a compromise and for whatever reason, maybe, you know, exhaustion or or whatever it might be, or a wish just to get things over with. I think people may be making arrangements and then uh, these are not true meetings of minds, if you like. And that's why there may not be what people, you know, look back on with 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 much favour. That's slightly speculative because that's coming out of the mass of the survey data and a little bit of the qualitative data. There's there's always another study that one can do to to, to flesh these out. But I think there might be an element where people are are. We, we certainly did have examples of people who were basically saying, well, I was told that I had to go to mediation. Um, I knew it wouldn't work or it wasn't what I wanted, but, but that was the expectation. And I was uh, that was you know, I was very firmly told that that was what I needed to do. Of course, that's with the benefit of legal advice. But it does mean that people are making arrangements that are, are not true agreements, I think. You know, I agree with, with Gillian's perspective and there were examples. Um, all those in the qualitative data that speaks exactly to what Gillian was saying, where it was almost mediation was a tick box exercise that individuals had to go through. They felt it was a necessary element. But there was also, I think, what the, the data that we haven't explained is that although there were 44% of arrangements made via mediation that had worked out as the divorcees expected, actually 90% of arrangements made by divorcing couples themselves worked out as expected, which was the highest percentage. And I think that speaks to the issue that Gillian was saying, which is if couples are coming at it almost as though a meeting of the minds and if they're completely outside of the system and they're arranging it themselves and their expectations are at that level, then, of course, that leads to the higher percentage. Uh, And of course, to a certain extent, we are making a a guess as to what's happening because we didn't have an opportunity to explore that particular side of the data. But I think what Joe was saying as to what are the reasons why we have these differences in figures, I mean, we can 
I think these are part of the reasons that it's almost this meeting of the minds and possibly for some people mediation was just an exercise that they had to go through, um, which was some of the data that we had from the qualitative, the interview side. Hmm. Well, I identified some sort of persona types, didn't you? I, I thought that was really interesting in, in, in terms of the the sort of cat, the, the the couple's attitude to to their finances is that the way to describe it? I think what we were finding, particularly through the qualitative work, was that of course everybody's financial circumstances will be different. On the other hand, we know that actually a lot of things are, are fairly standard. You know, mo- most people have a limited range of assets and so on and so forth. So how do you understand why particular arrangements come out? Why are different people making different arrangements? And it seemed to us that when you looked at the qualitative interview data, you could loosely put people into different categories in terms of how they'd viewed their marriage, what sort of relationship they thought they'd had, their mindset, if you like, and what they were hoping for or expecting in the divorce itself. And so we categorised people very loosely. And, of course, there will be differences and people don't match up neatly uh, in these. But it just seemed that, that there were these broad, different mindsets, I think, towards marriage and divorce. So we had, as Emma mentioned, the unequal couples who were the most problematic where we did have a number of interviewees who clearly had had very difficult relationships with their their ex, that there was a power imbalance there. There was, in a number of cases, various forms of domestic abuse, including financial uh, abuse. And I think the financial abuse angle is also something that that came out quite quite interestingly and, and confirms you know, recent thinking on on divorce as well, tying back to the mediation point as well and suitability or otherwise for mediation. Uh, but you have those unequal couples where where basically there's not going to be a negotiation because an ultimatum is going to be made uh, by the more powerful party. And that explains why there will be people who have walked away with nothing or walked away with very poor bargains, even despite having had some advice. But then more positively, if you like, there are other categories of of divorcees. So we found that, um, if you like, you know, the true partners, those who really saw their marriage as a, a, a joint partnership, a joint enterprise that they'd entered into, that would be reflected in how they had shared or approached their money during the marriage. And that also fed through then into their thinking about how to divide up what they had afterwards. Uh, so we've called them the partners. Then you would get people who, who are much more individualistic. And one of the strong things that I think does come through in quite a lot of the the, the data is an emphasis on ownership. You know, this is mine. A a fair outcome will be me getting back what's mine, keeping things separate during marriage, and therefore wanting to walk away with with what was mine. That, That we kind of regarded as, well, you know, what sort of marriage is this? Well, it's a relationship of, of two individuals. So we called them the housemates. This is a bit like flat sharing. And when you get to the end of your flat sharing arrangement, you know, you're going to take away what's yours. And that seems to be reflected in in a number of cases as well. And then finally, and these are not by, by size category either. Um, they are just types, typologies. Um, the final category that we identified were those where it was the children that were most important. Um, these were the, the, the people who saw their marriage as, 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 as parents um, and they wanted to make sure that they did right by their children and the focus was on the arrangements for primary care and so on. And so the division of assets would be driven by that parenting approach. So we felt that that was a useful way of 
perhaps understanding why people might be might tend towards particular outcomes when you might say, well, you know, you could have done differently or you could have done better. But those were their motivations. And I think it's quite important to understand that people do have a range of attitudes and motivations to their marriage and their divorce. And that feeds through into what they see as fair. So a kind of, you know, oh, well, 50-50 is fair. Yes, some people will think that. But actually, a lot of people don't think that. To them, that is not fair. That doesn't reflect how they live their marriage or how they wish to live their divorce. You, you just wonder whether a lot of the contested cases we see are because people with two different mindsets got married to one another. It's definitely something that comes up in prenup conversations, isn't it, Joe? Oh, it undoubtedly does come up in prenup conversations. And it was interesting to think about the different types of divorces here defined in that context. But I was also reflecting on how does this information help us when it comes to looking at divorces in the future? And I think from my perspective, I'm interested, Simon and Anita, to hear your take on this. I would probably feel least nervous if I were working with a couple or with an individual who I thought had been part of a partnership who had properly divvied up their, their finances, their resources during the marriage, who will no doubt have particular views about how that should then follow through on divorce. In terms of housemates and the individualistic type approach, I think I'd want to look at what was actually underpinning that behaviour in the marriage, because, of course, if there were elements of domestic abuse in the relationship, for example, and that had underpinned why they had organised their affairs in that way. Or, of course, if there are children and therefore that's relevant to the divorce outcome, I'd want to just think how that might flow through. But I think I would be most precautious, well, hopefully understandably, around the unequal divorcees, who I suspect would really underestimate their worth in any divorce process, any finances discussion. And then the parents as well, who I think the research really showed that the parent with care, typically the mum, not always the mum, um, at the end of the marriage, would be very focused on the immediate financial picture, the importance of the family home, but perhaps rather less focused, as we've discussed already, on pensions and longer-term provisions. So I think just thinking about these different types of personality should actually help lawyers in how they approach these discussions, where they are involved with these clients. Before we go on to maintenance, do you does the research tell us how often, uh, for example, the the couples, the unequal couples who have the power imbalance, do, does the research tell us how often that is the the couples where they end up with a contested court hearing at the end? We haven't as yet had the opportunity to analyse the data in terms of outcomes for specific population groups. So, for example, those who experience domestic abuse and what processes or what outcomes they use. That's actually something we hope to do in future analysis of the data set, funding permitting, obviously. I think from the interview data, it what we can glean from that is that qualitatively there is some indication that um, domestic abuse has had an impact on outcomes and process from those who experienced domestic abuse from the qualitative sample. For example, they had given up mm. at certain points or had they had gone along with possibly an equality outcome when an unequal division of assets may have better suited their needs or may have been more appropriate in the circumstances given their own needs and compared with the needs of their ex-wife. So we do have qualitative data that speaks to the issues, but as yet we haven't had the opportunity to analyse the survey data. Well, let's hope you get the uh, funding for, for that, because I think that would be really interesting. I mean, anecdotally, I imagine we would all agree that, that people who say they've um, suffered domestic abuse, you, it goes one of either way. You know, either they, they're very willing just to dip out early with anything they can get just to stop all the proceedings and the and the lawyers' involvements and, and carrying on with the argument. Or sometimes they go the other way, don't they? And absolutely won't accept anything. But, yeah, it would be interesting to know how much court time is taken up by couples where the relationship is defined in that way as opposed to the other couples um can we go on to maintenance 
what what does the research what did the research find about maintenance and and the outcomes so in relation to spousal maintenance we had some some key findings that really hopefully sort of speaks to you know counters one of the main myths which is that spousal maintenance is not being used as a meal ticket for life for wives i mean actually we found that maintenance is relatively uncommon. Only one in five had a spousal maintenance arrangement, for instance. And actually, instead of it being a meal ticket for life, it's actually almost always time limited. In 88% of cases, it was for a fixed term. And where it is for a fixed term, it's actually usually linked and tied to childcare responsibilities. So it's because of that notion of spousal maintenance in terms of what we found was it's actually understood as helping out and addressing needs rather than focusing on anything as a meal ticket. It's actually there to assist that individual getting back on that path to independent living um, because of requirements that they have undertaken so that they need in that interim period. So I think, yes, Yes, it's really sort of associated with a certain amount of vulnerability on behalf of the receiving spouse, um, where people have had children or where the recipient has had an illness or a disability, for instance. Interesting, Joe, in the law reform context that so much attention is devoted to trying to change the law of maintenance when for most people it appears not to be a significant issue. That's absolutely right, Simon. We've heard so much chat, um, as Emma has said, about these so-called meal tickets for life. Um, we've watched as successive private members' bills have been introduced into the House of Lords, one in particular, which has had a strong focus on something akin to a Scottish system. Whereas, in fact, if one takes a step back, and I go back to the plea for an evidential basis for reform, this shows that people are using spousal maintenance orders sparingly in appropriate circumstances. Arguably, they may be appropriate in more cases. It's about providing that crucial stepping stone to financial independence. Not always possible, as we know as practitioners, uh, to do that without spousal maintenance. If there's a relatively limited capital pot, um, and particularly with older older women, we always talk about the case of a woman in her early to mid fifties who may have been out of the workplace for quite quite some time and would find it difficult to rebuild back to financial independence. Now, the research says a lot around pensions in this context as well, of course, in the context of pension sharing. But really, for me, if we're looking at reform of the law. It's about principled discretion around these issues. We know that the Law Commission back in 2014, somehow almost 10 years ago, talked about doing some more detailed work on this topic, particularly looking at systems such as those which exist in Canada around the spousal support advisory guidelines. So doubtless there could be some more principles built around the legislation, but would I personally go so far as some advocate in terms of strict limits on amounts and term, absolutely not. And I hope that this research, among very many other things, will give us the confidence and the evidence basis to counter those sort of assertions. There's a lot of attention paid to the duration of maintenance and whether it should all be cut off after five years or whatever it might be. Um, but I think the other thing that comes out of our study is that, well, maintenance is a is a silly word anyway, isn't it? And of course, it doesn't appear in the statute. But maintenance implies that someone is being maintained, that all of their needs, including their lavish requirements, are being met by somebody else. And actually, what our study shows is that most maintenance is for probably quite small amounts of money. It's not someone being able to sit back and not work and not do anything for themselves mm -hmm. because their ex is going to continue to, to, you know, meet all their needs forever. That isn't what maintenance is for most people. Um, and that's where this sort of, you know, the myth of the wealthy divorce, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the billionaire cases is so unhelpful. Because even where there is maintenance, it's going to be for um, 
tidying somebody over or helping fill a gap between what they've got and can raise and what they need. Um, and I just think there, there's a job to be done, I think, in educating policymakers, perhaps, about what we mean by maintenance. It's an archaic term and, and we probably need something else instead. But it ties into this sort of alimony drone, meal ticket for life kind of myth. That is not what the maintenance that's being paid is for in in the vast majority of cases. Of course, you will find these wholly exceptional cases, but they are wholly exceptional. Jane, if I may, I was just going to come back in on the, the question of term. I'm reminded there's a really helpful table within your research which speaks to um, where a spousal maintenance order had been made for a specified number of years, which I think was in around 20% of the instances of spousal maintenance. Only 4% were for more than 10 years. Is that right? And that, that really struck me again. It goes back to the whole topic of the meal ticket for life and supposedly people having these, you know, forever and a day. But it was actually relatively short bursts of time where it was defined as a period of time that were actually being used. So I think, again, it's really striking. So what does the survey say about the long term impact of all of this on the participants? And I mean, both in respect of maintenance and capital. So we do have some, you know, short to medium term data on how people did, um, but it isn't long term. But what it does is it, again, confirms the the kind of demographic and, and large scale studies that others have done, which is that women start off with less and come out with less and struggle more. So so as, as Emma was saying, we know that um, up to five years after the divorce, women were more likely to, to be in a weaker financial position, to not have recovered their financial position, and that even if they repartnered, they were still uh, more likely than men not to have, have got back to where they were during the marriage. So there is a, a, a long-standing and, and well-understood, I'm afraid, relationship between divorce and greater levels of poverty or relative poverty for women. And as Emma said, um, in our report, we do look at particular categories. So we look at groups of, of people according to whether they had children or not and their age and again, as you, you, you wouldn't be surprised to, to, to find that older women, and particularly older women who'd had children, are struggling the most. What about child maintenance? Did, did your research suggest that the, the child maintenance system broadly works? I say with some hesitation. Let, let, let me have a, have a go at that. Well, Surprisingly, perhaps no, I don't think it does show that the system works. Unsurprisingly, I think what our research does is to confirm earlier studies looking at child maintenance and the child support system. And I think it comes out both from, from the government's own, own work on, on how the child maintenance service operates and so on, and the focus on family-based arrangements that if people can reach broad agreements, they may not be perfect agreements, but, you know, workable arrangements about their the, the support for their children, then that's fine. And those seem to operate reasonably well. But if you can't do that, or if there's a problem about the amount that you need or want, uh, or unreliability of payment, then you're back into all the difficulties with the child support system and the, you know, the, the, the difficulties of trying to enforce, collect and pay as, a, you know, direct pay, you give up because that's not coming in. So then you move to collect and pay. But then there are all the cost penalties, the fees that are taken out and so on. So if things work, then they work OK. 
And if they don't work, then you have all the same problems that people have highlighted through the child support system already with poor enforceability um, and, and unreliability. And I think if I may, Gillian, just to add again, I was really struck by, was it two in five divorced parents have no child maintenance arrangements at all? So it's, it's high, I thought, that came out of the research. And I know that you recorded in your report that the re- among the reasons given were, number one, the fact that the care of the children was being shared, so supposedly so were the costs and the costs were split, questions of affordability and lack of willingness to pay, which I think became clear given the longitudinal nature of your study so that was really striking for me that it was quite such a high proportion of cases where there was no arrangement at all. Be interesting to see the correlation with your persona types as well won't it if and when you get to do that piece of work. There was I mean I, I think we did get some information from the qualitative data about the knock-on effects of domestic abuse for the non-payment of child support. And as we know that there are, you know, domestic abuse from previous research, we know that um, the ongoing effects of domestic abuse after a couple have split up as well. And I think the non-payment of child support, but also the the pressure to say, well, we're sharing care, therefore there's no need for me to pay money. There are a variety of different mechanisms by which there were non-payment of child support and rationales behind and people not doing it. Should we go on to pensions? And I mean, pensions have a particular complexity, don't they? Because they have a particular value for each of the people in the relationship. And I assume that very much fitted into your typologies as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a very strong view, which I think all the research that's ever been done on pensions has confirmed, which is that people regard their pension as their own. After all, if you think about it, a lot of people will have started paying into a pension before they get married. They will carry on paying into it long after the marriage is over. So I think there are genuine difficulties, actually, in unravelling what the position ought to be with pensions. And one of the things that struck me in the qualitative data because we, we we talk about how, you know, people don't know what kind of pension they've got. They don't know what their pension is worth, let alone what their other what their spouse uh, has by way of pension provision. But actually, our findings show that, um, you know, the age at which you divorce is quite, quite well spread across the age range, isn't it? Now, that means that quite a lot of divorcees will be quite young. And they won't have given much thought to a pension or had an opportunity to contribute much into a pension. So it doesn't entirely surprise me that pensions is a bit of a black hole for people. And I can understand why people might say, look, it's just easier to say, this is mine. It goes with me. Um, you know, wherever I go, my my pension pot goes with me. And it's kind of separate somehow from our marriage. Now, that might be emphasized by some of the people who have the more individualistic approach to, to relationships anyway, rather than the partners who might see themselves as, as making joint efforts to accumulate a a combined pension pot. But I I, I suppose what I'm saying in a very long-winded way is that pensions are difficult. And I don't think there is a simple principle or remedy or magic bullet for how the law needs to be reformed to ensure that pensions are more properly taken into account. But I do think they need to be more properly taken into account. But I think that's a really difficult conundrum. What do you say about that, Joe? Well, I was going to come in. I, I completely agree with Gillian. So we know that the prevalence of pension sharing orders is low. And Gillian said the statistic, I think it's 11% of cases where there was a pension not yet in payment, uh, was there a pension sharing order? And in only about a fifth of those cases were the pension shared equally. So 
clearly there is a difficulty here, but I agree it's not so much about the statute, the law as it stands. It is an education piece for me. So there was clearly, and it came shining through all of the research comments around this, complete lack of awareness and understanding, interest in pensions as a concept among the divorcees who were spoken to, who were surveyed. And then a lot of people who were spoken to really saw pensions as belonging to the individual rather than being the product of the marriage. And that then also feeds through into how they approach them on divorce. So I think there is a piece to be done around just broader education about pensions and what they are. I think there's a piece of education around their significance um, in divorce cases as well. And then in terms of practicalities, and it's a given, and most, if not all of our listeners will be fully aware of this, still too many clients who come to me, they haven't gathered the pension information quickly enough. And when they're told that, you know, to get a POVE report is going to take 16, 20 weeks plus, from the point the information is actually being gathered to produce the necessary information, unsurprisingly, they're put off by that. And they want to either approach things in a very broad brush way, or otherwise to offset, or simply disregard the pensions. So I think from all perspectives, this does need to be given careful thought, but I know it's something that the PAG, with all of their expert insights, have been giving thought to and banging this drum for a number of years now, and will continue to do so. This research serves to cement everything that PAG has said, but we just need to get the message through to people. So before we finish... What about if you all put on your uh, policy maker hats <laughs> and taking into account what you've read in the report and what we've learned from the report, can you each of us tell us one thing that you would suggest should be changed about this area of law specifically, obviously? And I don't know who wants to go first on on, on that tricky question. All right, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I can go in first, um, but I'm probably going to move the question around and be a complete politician and say that instead of saying what I would do, I'd say what I wouldn't do, which is ultimately, I think what the research shows is that this idea of a presumption of equal sharing of assets would actually not deliver a fair outcome between between many divorcees, nor would it actually reflect the whole variety of different priorities and motivations that individual divorcees have. And I think particularly given the range in wealth, the range in earning capacity of the divorcing population, couples own differing priorities, I think it would be more likely at this presumption of equality to actually cement inequality between husbands and wives, um, with mothers and older wives doing particularly badly, because something that we haven't really looked at today are the consequences, the more short to medium term consequences for um, an out of outcomes on divorce. And what we found is that at the point of the survey, for up to five years after the divorce, female divorcees and particularly mothers and those in older age tended to be worse off than men, even where they had repartnered. So I think I'm going to do the politician thing and say what I don't want to see is a presumption of equality. Can you just before we pass on to the next person, do you want to reflect on what Joe was saying earlier about her views about maintenance and the idea of time limited or, or prescriptive orders around that? No, absolutely. I, I agree 100% in that given the data and the findings that we have and how individuals require that ability to be able to negotiate their own maintenance arrangements that suit them and their family's needs, I think it would be potentially quite dangerous to impose a three or a five-year term limit where that may cause particular vulnerability to you know, those who are at their most vulnerable and at times where they need that support to get them on that road to independent living. So I would be very wary, again, of introducing a fixed time limit. OK, thank you. Gillian, do you want to go next? OK, well, of course, I agree entirely with what um, Emma has just said. But but something we haven't touched on, but which does come out in the study 
is the position of older children. And I know that this is something also that, that policymakers are, are interested in. But we did find that a lot of children who are in the theory not dependent actually are still living with a parent, still receiving financial or other support from a parent. And um, I think that is an issue that is worth the attention of law reformers. Again, I wouldn't like to speculate on what the correct approach should be, uh, but I think we have to accept that um, insofar as the Matrimonial Causes Act is now looking a bit out of date, it's actually in relation to the attitude to post-16-year-olds that in some respects it looks most out of date. People don't leave school at 16 anymore and go straight into a factory job or whatever it was they were doing 50 years ago. And uh, I think I think there is something to be said for rethinking um, what dependency in a, in a nuclear family means and how that needs to feed through into divorce arrangements. And I think from my perspective, um, and also not quite answering your question, Anita, I don't really want to call it at this stage because resolution has been really clear. If there's to be any financial remedies reform, we need to study that carefully. We need to look at the evidence bases clearly. We need to work with the Law Commission, um, and it's obviously working on its scoping project as we speak with a initial report due to be published next September. I actually think a big area of debate in 2024 and beyond is going to be the whole question of how pressing is it to reform uh, the Matrimonial Causes Act? How pressing is financial remedies reform? And I know Emma and Gillian are sick of hearing me say this, but it's something I've said at the launch of the Fair Shares uh, report, and I'll say again, Matrimonial Causes Act was born effectively in 1973. I was born in 1973. I had my 50th the day after their report was published. And I say that the MCA is faring much better than I am um, in terms of you know, how long these things have gone on for and how it's looking now. So I genuinely feel we just need to see how things map out, how these discussions map out. We know that the Law Commission is principally looking at this now because the government committed to doing that as part of the no-fault divorce legislation going through. Um, so let's, let's watch this space. Thank you all for coming and to our listeners, if you like it, please leave us a review.